All right, well, we are going to go ahead and get started. This is, uh, this is the room of the brave people. You know why? Because you are listening to probably the most inexperienced uh, speaker at this event. And not only that, but you are here to listen to one of the most unread books in the Bible. In fact, I, I, I did a uh, small survey of what were the least read books in the Bible. And uh, Haggai was uh, up on the list, was number seven, actually. So, uh, <laughs> so, so yeah, so, but thank you guys for coming. Uh, I pray that you be blessed and encouraged uh, by the word of Haggai. Uh, and I'm sure I'm in the company of those who believe that all of the word of God is living and active and sharper. And so, uh, so we rest under that banner this morning. Um, let me tell you a little bit about myself. I'll be extremely brief. I've been a pastor for four and a half years. So when you pastored in the single digits, you use that half. Uh, it's just, you know, another half year of experience. <laughs> um, so before that, I was human resource manager with Home Depot for a long time. So uh, there were some similarities there uh, with dealing with people and conflict was, uh, was basically a way of life for me for a while. Um, my wife and I, we live in Vienna, Ohio, which is uh, just north of Youngstown, if you're familiar. Some of you from North Ridgeville, I grew up, born and raised for 20-some years in uh, Vermilion, Ohio. You might know where that's at. And then uh, went to uh, Boyce Bible College and then to Southern Seminary and got a master's in biblical counseling. And so uh, I, I have been very thankful to sit under Dr. Scott. You guys know Dr. Stuart Scott and uh, just had a great privilege to sit under him and Heath Lambert. And uh, what a blessing that was. And so uh, my wife and I, we've been married for uh, 10 years. And uh, we have three little ones. Our oldest is Lincoln and Chamberlain and uh, Holly. So if you remember the Civil War, you probably get the connection there. Uh, so um, anyway, so that's a little bit about us. So today we are going to dive into the entire book of Haggai, which is not as daunting as you may think. It's obviously only two chapters. Um, but there are some amazing things that happen in the book of Haggai that, that if, you, you know, if you neglect the book of Haggai, then you neglect those truths that are found in this amazing book. Uh, at least I, I think it's amazing, and, and I hope you will too. If you've never read it, uh, we're going to read a little bit about it today. But first, let me give you a little bit of a... Uh, let, let me frame just for you a little bit uh, about what we're getting ready to talk about with Haggai. So let's pick it up, uh, essentially, with God's people who are enslaved in, uh, in, uh, in Egypt, right? So God's people, that's, that's where we'll pick it up. They're, they're enslaved in Egypt. Uh, uh, God calls Moses to go and to set my people free, and they go out into uh, the wilderness on their way to the promised land, and something happens there. They, they, they don't trust God. They don't believe God to give them what he said he would give them. And so what? They wander in the wilderness for many years. And then what happens is that as they're wandering in the wilderness, God is dwelling with them. But he's dwelling with them in a tent. That was kind of their, their makeshift temple, if you will. And then so essentially they, uh, they do end up in the promised land. They prosper. And God says that if you obey me, things will go well. And if you don't obey me, then I will send someone, an enemy of yours, to make war against you. Well, we know what happens. It continues to go. David becomes king. Things go well. David tells God, I'll build you a house. 
I'll build you a house, uh, a temple for you to dwell in. And David says, er, and, and God says, no, I'll build you one. Your son will build me a house. And so David does this. Uh, God builds David a house. David dwells in this house. David has a son, Solomon. Solomon builds God this amazing grand temple that is remembered for many generations uh, from now. Even people in the book of Haggai are thinking back uh, of that time. And so what happens though, Solomon dies, 922, things go bad, the people revolt, the, uh, the nation of Israel is divided into two kingdoms, and then what happens? Assyria comes in and conquers Israel, just as God said. God said, listen, if you obey me, it will go well, but if you don't, I will raise up enemies to make war on you. And then essentially what happens is later on, we see uh, Judah, right, uh, Jeremiah prophesies to Judah, Turn back. You remember that beautiful chapter in Jeremiah chapter 2. Oh, I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride, how as a bride you followed me in a wilderness. Even though you couldn't see the way, you trusted me. And God was calling them back through the prophet Jeremiah to that devotion that they had. And yet they still, the people still went their own way. And then what happened was Babylon came. God sent Babylon to conquer them. And then they were a slave. They were exiled for over 70 years in Babylon. And then what happens is we see that King Cyrus from the Persian Empire comes in. And he decrees. He makes that famous decree. Remember that? Cyrus's decree. And he decrees basically religious freedom. He allows and he really calls the Jewish people to return to their land that at this point had been in ruin because of war. So war came in because of the people. And now the people were really being called by Cyrus to go back to their land. They were even given money. And so over 50,000 people returned back to Jerusalem, back to their homeland, back to the promised land that was now in ruins, and Zerubbabel led the first wave. And with the help of Joshua the high priest, he began rebuilding the temple. And in two years, they rebuilt the foundation, but then they ceased work on the temple for 17 years. And so you see, God called them to build the temple, and they started well, but they got distracted. And so it's in the midst of God's people getting too busy for God that we find our text here this morning in the book of Haggai. So I want to read to you a few verses that I put together from the book of Haggai. So you, you, can, you can turn to the book of Haggai. You might have a little trouble finding it. Basically Matthew and then go a little bit to the left and you'll see the book of Haggai there. I'm just going to read a few passages that help us get some kind of framework because we're short on time obviously. Let me read here. Pick it up in verse 1, chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shittil, governor of Judah. And it also came to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag without holes or with holes. Then Zerubbabel, 
the son of Shetil, and Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest with all the remnant of the people, obeyed vo the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. And then in chapter 2, verse 19, Then the Lord said, From this day on, I will bless you. And then a day is coming, verse 21, when I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shatil, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, we have read your holy word. Lord, we trust not only have you given it, our brothers and sisters who have gone before us, but you have preserved it for our own good, for our own growth. So God, it's to you we submit, it's to you we pray that you would not only strengthen us, but Lord, strengthen us, enable us to minister and to serve others. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. How many of you have started something but not finished it? Probably all of us. I'm a big, I'm a big remodeler. I love to remodel things. We just remodeled our kitchen. And it started well, but then it trills off. It trickles off. As, as, uh, either as the money runs out or as the interest fades, uh, slowly it's like, yeah, we got a lot of it done, but we, we kind of left off. It's just not finished. And, and, and that's the way that we oftentimes do things. We get excited about something and, and we're all gung-ho and then all of a sudden it begins to fade. But this doesn't only go for projects, does it? But it goes for marriages and relationships. If you've counseled people, you, you, one of the things when I always counsel married couples, I always think, you know, it wasn't always like this. There was a time, at least at the outset or at least at the beginning, when there was an enthusiasm, there was an excitement and then... Something happened. There are many things happened. And then it begins to fade. And we see that our enthusiasm can quickly fizzle. How many, how many times do we see believers, and, and maybe some of you found yourself in this, where you, you, you were really on fire for the Lord. You, you were really witnessing, and you were really reading the Word. You were growing. And all of a sudden, that, that flame that was blazing began to flicker. You see, it's easy to start something, but it's another thing to finish it. And not just finish it, but finish it well. And this is exactly where God's people found themselves in Haggai's day. The, the people here were given a clear task, a clear mission of what, of what they were to do. They were excited and focused, but then it all seemed to fade. The excitement soon turned to boredom. Focus was lost because of distractions. And their devotion, their interest was placed in other things. It was placed on their plans and their agendas and not on God's. We see that, that, that God calls or he rebukes the people through the prophet Haggai right at the outset of this message. The theme of this year's conference is living at peace in a warring world. And the title of this session is finding peace in the midst of war, a call to consider your ways. And when we think about war, we think about it, it, it can really be defined as a, as a conflict or a struggle between two parties or multiple parties. But there's, a, there's friction there, there's tension there. And, and peace can oftentimes understood as simply the opposite of that. 
Peace comes when the struggle or conflict between two parties is gone. But our theme here today is really of how can we have peace while there's war still happening? That seems to be a little bit more difficult. So how do we find peace? And how do we help others to find peace while living in the midst of war? If you think about it, we are surrounded by war. Not just nations and countries, but relationships and, and friends and temptations and even our, in our own soul. See, the war is not just out there, but it's also in our own heart. James talks about this, right? That causes quarrels and fights among you. Is it not the passions that are at war within your soul? And so he's clear to say, listen, there's passions that are in you. There, there's war that is even going on in your own soul that also creates war externally. Paul, uh, Paul talks about this in Galatians 5.17. The desires of the flesh are against or at, at war with the desires of the spirit. Peter as well talks about this in 1 Peter 2.11. Passions of the flesh are waging war against your own soul. And so we have to see that, that there is war everywhere we look. And not only do we see it, but we, we feel it. Have you ever been in a relationship where you just, you just felt that conflict and that, that struggle and that tension it exhausted you at times? And so our goal today is to learn from the book of Haggai and pull out four elements from this extraordinary book to see how we can find peace in the midst of war that's not only around us, but also that's in us. And so the first point there, you have it in your handouts. When our ways are contrary to God's ways. This first 11 verses of the book of Haggai, if you want to encourage you to go back and read through Haggai. But when we look at this, our ways are contrary to God's ways. When our ways are contrary to God's ways, it brings war, it brings conflict, it brings struggle. It always has. I mean, ever since the beginning of right Adam and Eve in the garden, when they wanted to do their own thing, war, conflict, and struggle entered into the picture. And not only did it enter in then, but it really ushered war into every aspect of creation. In fact, I've yet to counsel a couple whose marriage was in shambles because they were both living in accordance with God's ways. No, the shambles so often come, the war so often comes, when we live according to our ways, and God's people here are no different. God sends Haggai to his people who should be doing what he has clearly called them to do, but in verse 2, these people say, it's not yet time to rebuild. That is, it's not yet time to do what God has called them to do. Uh, I want to encourage you to have the book of Haggai open because I'm going to call you to, to go back there often. Um, but as we see here, that God is essentially saying, he's calling the people and he's saying, is it not yet time to obey me? And this is very interesting here because in one sense, you, you, you get the feeling that these people here are too busy or that they're not ready yet to obey the Lord. And perhaps they're thinking that a better time will come. You know, I'm kind of busy right now. I kind of got a lot of things happening. I, I got this and I got that. and I really don't have time to, to do what the Lord's called me to do. And the Lord rebukes them through Haggai. In verse 4 it says, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, that is my house, lies in ruins? God asked them a question to expose them justifying their disobedience. 
And I can't tell you, and, and probably as many of you in here have counseled for many, many years, and you, you've sat with people, or you will sit with people, or you do this yourself, where essentially uh, you talk with a couple, and I've talked with couples who I, I, I listen to what's happening, and then I call them, hey, this is not what you should be doing. You should be obeying. You should be walking in the Lord this way. And then say, yeah, but you don't understand, or I can't do this. And begin making excuses of why they can't obey the Lord. And this is exactly what's happening in the book of Haggai. These people are making excuses of why it's not the right time to obey the Lord. In verse 5, God, through Haggai, calls them to consider their ways. He calls them to think about what they're doing. And not only think about what they're doing, and not only think about what they're living, but think about how their life is going. Let me get this straight. You don't have time to obey me. But you have time to do what you want to do. How's that working out? Are you, are you at more peace now? Are things going better? Relationships stronger? No, God, God is essentially, uh, he calls them to consider the ways because he knows things aren't going well. In fact, look in verse 6. And verse 6 is one of the most powerful rebukes in the sense of exposing the issues. God doesn't wait for them to answer the question. No, this is a rhetorical question. He says, you've sown much. That is, you, you've been working, you've been laboring, you've been planting a lot. In fact, some of you say, hey, I, I don't have time to rebuild the temple. I've got to get these crops in. And look what he says. You've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You're trying to get full, satisfied, but you never are. You clothe yourself, you still can't get warm. You earn money, you, you earn wages. It's as if they keep disappearing, right? You, you, you put them in a bag that has holes. What God is clearly, clearly saying here to his people who are trying to live according to their ways is that they can't ever seem to get what they want. They can't ever seem to get what they want. In a real sense, they're living in a constant struggle, a conflict, or a war. This reminds me of my son Lincoln who loves to build and create things. And, and, and there's times where I'll clearly tell him how to do something. He'll say, no, I want to do it my way. And so I'll sit back and he'll do it his way and he's using the wrong tools and he's doing this and he's getting frustrated and, and things just aren't going well. And then finally he turns to me and says, okay, Dad, how do I do this again? Right? And then I, I bend down and I go ahead, this is how you do it. And so this is exactly what's happening in Haggai. And you look in verse 7 and 8, God calls them to consider their ways again, and he repeats what he has called them to do in the first place. And then in verse 9, he reminds them again of the consequences of living contrary to his ways. But there's something else that's going on here. In verse 9, he calls them, look what he says here. As he's reminding them of the consequences, he then says, I did it. I did this. Verse 9, you worked hard and yet things didn't turn out. You know why? I blew it away. I didn't let it. Why? Because you neglected what I called you to do. This is what God is telling the people. In verse 10, he said, look, verse 10, he says, I dried the heavens up. So your crops that you worked so hard to plant, it wouldn't get any rain. And see, the earth isn't giving back to you what you planted. In verse 11, he says, I, it was I who called for the drought. I mean, when you think about these first 11 verses, they, they clearly show us that what so often causes war is when we try to live according to our ways and not God's. And we think about the, the opposite of that. 
what happens when we live according to God's ways? Look at the main point two here, realigning your ways to God's ways. God was calling his people to realign their ways. When he tells them to consider their ways, he was really calling them back, calling them to, to get back on track, to, to get back where you were. Look in verse 12, he says, it says that they obeyed the Lord. That after this rebuke, after this call of God, calling them to consider their ways and, and say, hey, how's life going? He calls them back, and in verse 12 it says, it starts with Zerubbabel, and then it goes to Joshua and the people, that they obeyed the Lord. And, and I'll be honest with you, that there's so many times where I'm, I'm counseling someone or a couple, I'm just thinking, and if you just did what God's already called you to do, maybe, and I'm very confidently, that a lot of these warring conflicts around you will begin to fade away. So the people get back to work. They begin rebuilding the temple after 17 years of distractions. But keep in mind that in order to do what God's called them to do, they had to put aside their plans, their agenda, and begin walking according to God's ways. Look with me in verse 3 here of chapter 2. As they were rebuilding the new temple, God knew that was in God knew what was going on in their hearts. And so he says to them, who here remembers the old temple? Get this picture. As they're they're back in the land, in the war-torn land, where the walls needed to be rebuilt and the temple needed to be rebuilt, uh, you have old and young, right? Ezra talks about this, right? The the old people were weeping and the young people were celebrating. Why? Because there there was a disjoint in the sense that the old people remembered how great it was and they're looking at what they were building and they're like, this is never going to be as good as it was. This is never going to be like it was. And so they were finding themselves discouraged. They were losing heart. And so often in our obedience we get discouraged because it's not turning out the way we thought. And how many times have I counseled people who you, you call them to do these things, you call them to obey the Lord and they come back a week or two or three weeks later it's not working. Not working. Well, what's not working? Well, all these issues aren't getting fixed. Ah, and you really get to the heart of the issue. The issue is that you want your circumstances fixed more than you want Jesus. And whenever that creeps in, then you begin to use Jesus as a means whereby you get what you want. Jesus is not the byproduct. He is the greatest thing that we have to treasure. Everything else comes from that. And so you call them to treasure Christ. Look what he says in verse 4. This is such a powerful but simplistic word. He says to be strong. What right does he have to tell them that? Not just because he's God. But he says, I'm with you. I'm with you. We have every right to be strong and courageous because God the Father says he is with us. That's not contingent on things. He's with us. And so he can call us to be strong. We have every, every means to be strong. You see, essentially God was telling the people... Your life is a mess here because you're walking, you're living contrary to my ways. And so they realign their life, they live according to his ways, but things don't seem to get much better. There's still some discouragement, some disappointment there. But look how God encourages these people. Again, he says, I'm with you. 
And we really have to ask the question, is that enough? I mean, this is, this is essentially a, a promise that God gives to the people. He's telling them that I am with you. He's reminding them of, of what he told Jeremiah, who prophesied to these people, that I am, I am with you. I'm not going to leave you. Yes, I may have an enemy come in and conquer you, but I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'll be with you. And just think about this. So often what we need the most in order to live in peace in the midst of war is already there. I counsel married couples who are believers and I say everything you need to have a great marriage you already have. You see, the the danger here is that we use God's promises like a pair of glasses. If you look at them, they won't change anything. If you look through them, it changes everything. And this is the way that God's promises, God's promises are, are not something that we can just hang on the wall or put on the back of a car, but it's something that we actually, that actually has a tangible, real impact in the way that we see all of life. When people are cruel to us, when situations go wrong and they go sour, when relationships get bitter, when people don't want to forgive you, you have to look at something beyond that and look through the lens of God's promises. And they begin to change how you see all of life. At the end of this section, in chapter 2, verse 5 through 9, God tells the people that he is with them, just as he promised he always will be. He also tells them that a time is coming when all their labors will bear glorious fruit. And he says the glory of the temple, the one you don't think much about, will be greater than the old one. Why? Because in this place, he says, I will give peace. Think about this. He's telling them that in this place, I will give peace. He's essentially telling them that the best is yet to come. He, he, he's looking in the eyes of the older believers. He's saying, listen, you are looking back to what's past and you're weeping. But trust me, something better is coming. The best is yet to come. What's he talking about? He's talking about a new temple, a better temple? No, he's talking about the Messiah. Remember in Revelation 21-22 when John is accounting of the new Jerusalem and he says that I saw it and there was no temple. Why? Because the Lord Almighty, the Lamb, is the temple. He's the temple. This is why John the Baptist and John the Apostle begin and talk about in the Gospel of John that he's the light of the world. He is the light. You don't need a sun. You don't need a moon. You don't need a temple. He is everything. And he's not just everything. When we get to heaven. He's everything now. We just struggle with realizing that. And so it's through the Messiah that God will bring peace. And it's only through clinging to him, trusting in him, and walking with the Messiah. That we can ever find lasting peace in the midst of war. Let me move on quickly to the third point here. The extinction of peace and never ending war. You see, this is in Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. If the greatest threat to peace is disobedience, straying from Christ, walking according to our own ways, then listen, the greatest threat to war is Christ and walking in His ways. In verse 12 through 13, Haggai asks two questions that seem complicated but are really not. The first in verse 12 
essentially says, can something become holy if it touches something that's holy? So can something that's holy make something else holy just by touching it? And then in verse 13, he asks a similar question. Can something become unclean if it touches something that's unclean? And the first one, he says, no. That is, if something is holy, and if it touches something that's, uh, that's not holy, can it become holy? No. But he says, if something unclean touches something that's holy, can it be made unclean? Yes. Now look at where he's getting at. He's essentially saying this, that uh, your disobedience has infected or affected everything. I mean, this is powerful here. That the people's disobedience was infecting everything else they did. James Boyce says the Israelites had been living in a contaminated state due to their inverted priorities. And as a result, everything they touched was contaminated. He's essentially saying, listen, you, you, you willingly and knowingly disobeyed me year after year, week after week. And then you thought that by sacrificing or by reading, right? Let's just think about this. Reading the Bible, going to church. You thought, I'll make up for this. I'll make up in this area where I'm not willing to submit in this area. And you end up bartering with God. You play games with God. So instead of saying, well, I know he's calling me here, but instead of doing what he's calling me to do here, I'll just read my Bible somewhere. This obviously doesn't make sense to the Lord in the sense that he's not called them to barter with him. In reality, sometimes we try to pursue peace by doing something else for God to make up for what we won't do, uh, for, for what we don't want to do. And in the end, we, cause up, we end up causing more war. We end up causing more strife. John Calvin says, We know how heedlessly men deal with God. They trifle with him like children with their puppets. Verse 16, God again asked the people how life was when they were disobeying him. He then points out again the waste that all their labors brought about. In verse 17, he again says, listen, I struck you and all your labors with disease, mildew, and hail. God is saying that I struck you. But realize this, this is coming from a God who loves, not someone who's seeking to condemn you, who's pushing you, who's rubbing your nose in your sin and your failures. This is coming from a God whose grand desire is to restore you and see you doing well. Notice the difference of the way God says, I struck you. God says, I struck you to make you better, to make you more joyful, to live in peace. God is adamant to do the work. He's literally saying, I was working against what you were trying to accomplish. Think about that. God says in love, that I was working against what you were trying to accomplish. Why? Because you wanted to do it your own way. You know, when, when, I'm, uh, when I'm sitting there watching my son do something, I could easily step in. But I, I, there's a point where you have to let him feel the weight of his own foolishness. Right? You have to taste it. And then, and then, and then he looks and he says, now help. And you come in. God loves us too much to allow us to have peace when we are in willful disobedience to him. The Israelites complain. Remember, the Israelites complained about the turmoil. That's essentially what's going on. When they're in the wilderness, they were complaining about the wilderness. But what happened? They walked out there, right? You see, some of the war that's in our life, we caused. And so we have to look and say, Lord, 
let me consider my ways. This is a deep call to consider your ways. This is a call from a loving, patient, forgiving God. Mind you, it was 17 years. And what happens? God is so quick to restore these people who had rebelled for 17 years. He quickly, I mean, just in this, in this little chapter here, he gets to the end, he says, I'll bless you for the rest of your days. My goodness, that was quick. That was quick, Lord. Look here at the last one, the extinction of war and never-ending peace. Our last point takes us to a time coming when war will be no more. And all we will know is peace. If we think about it, all we have ever known is war. In the sense that ever since creation, all of creation, ever since the fall, all of creation has been at war, has been in conflict against one another. But here God is calling us to look forward to, toward a time when war will be extinguished and peace will be never ending. He says in verse 21, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the kingdoms. I'm about to overthrow the chariots and their riders. This isn't like what he did, right, in, in, in Exodus 15 when they were crossing the Red Sea and the chariots and their riders were washing up on the bank and the Israelites are lining the bank and they're singing a song of praise. No, this is an eternal, a, 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 a everlasting war that God will bring about in order to bring final peace. Look in verse 23. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage. He says, on that day, there's a day when God will make final war. On that day, in order to bring about peace, remember that, that's, that's the whole reason why God is, why God says that I'm, that I'm going to shake the heavens, I'm going to shake the earth and overthrow the kingdoms. I mean, think about the, the God's people at this point, they were, they were, there was times of peace and then war. Peace, war, peace, war. Right? God was allowing the Assyrians to come in, the Babylonians to come in, and on and on and on. The people were being exiled, and then back and back and forth. And it was, oh, what? Because they were sinning. They were straying from God. And so God is saying, listen, there's going to come a time when this whole thing is over. There's no, more, there's, there's no more worrying about a nation coming to make war on you. There's going to come a time when all you will know is peace. And look what he says here. I want you to see this. On that day, declares the Lord. Remember, he's calling them to look forward. On that day, declares the Lord, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shatil, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I've chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And what does this have to do with never-ending peace? A signet ring was a ring that the king wore to use as his seal in order to signify his ownership of something. It was a proclamation. It was, it was a way that you put your mark on a, on a document to seal it. That, that, that's where it had its authority. If it had the seal of the king, then this is the real deal. This, is a, this has authority behind it. So this is essentially what he's saying, that I, I will make you Zerubbabel like that signet ring that I, that I press into my covenant when I say I will make final peace. When I press in, I say, I, I, said, I, I, I will destroy all nations. I mean, he's doing this with authority, but, but there's an interesting thing. What does Zerubbabel have to do with this? Well, go with me to the left, to Matthew chapter 1. Just a few pages there. 
we understand that Matthew 1 is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Look with me here in verse 13. You see Zerubbabel. Ah, Zerubbabel is in the line of David. That is in the line of the Messiah. So you see what God was saying through Haggai is that there will come a time when through the line of Zerubbabel I will make for myself a signet ring that will seal all my promises and decrees. Matthew Henry, listen to what Matthew Henry says. This is amazing. Our Lord Jesus is the signet ring on God's right hand for all power is given to Him and derived from Him by Him, the great charter of the gospel is signed, ratified, and it is in Him that all the promises of God are yes and amen. Isn't that good news? In closing, there's so many times we ourselves and the people we counsel just want peace. We're just tired of the brokenness, tired of the, the bitterness, tired of the war. the warring relationships, the warring circumstance, and even the frustration of not being able to find peace. I mean, so often we can't even find peace in our own soul, much less when we deal with other people. But why? Why? It's certainly not from a shortage of people seeking it. I believe one of the main reasons why so many people can't seem to find peace in the midst of war is because they're seeking peace directly. Follow me here. What I mean is that for so many, peace is the goal. It's what they want. And in many ways, it can even become an idol. I want peace. I want solace. I want rest from the war. But peace has never been the goal. Christ has. Jesus Christ is the goal. He's why we live. He's why we exist. He's why we do what we do. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And when we understand that we already have in Him everything that we need, then we can begin to live as free and not trying to cling to our pride and our, oh, I need to be seen better in this person's eyes or, oh, they're attacking me. You know, all that goes away when you understand that Christ is the goal. I mean, for so many people that I counsel, I ask them, after they tell me their issues, what is it that you desire? And so often they say, peace. Or maybe they'll say, well, just a a good marriage. Or this or that. And I've yet to hear Jesus. I've yet to hear the couple who comes in and says, and I say, well, why are you here? Well, we're here because we realize our marriage isn't honoring the Lord. Wow. You see, when that's in your mind, you come in a lot earlier, right? You, you, you don't wait for the train to derail and then moss is growing over everything. But you come in because you're like, man, listen, like, the greatest problem in our marriage isn't what she said or what he's doing. It's that we're not honoring the Lord. That's the greatest problem. 
That's my greatest concern. I mean, could you imagine that? You say, well, you, you know, I'll find you'd be counseled by them at that point, right? But, but you think about this, that when people begin to have that mindset that, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the pinnacle, that he is the greatest treasure, and we just need to spend the rest of our life realizing what, what it is that we already have. The great danger in all of life has always been the same, which is that we often desire the benefits of Jesus more than Jesus. We so often want the benefits and the blessings more than we want the Creator and the Savior. We must realize that all these things, peace, joy, etc., They'll never come by chasing after them directly. Never. But by seeking after Christ. These things that we desire so often are simply byproducts of something greater. You see, well, God was calling the people. You put on clothes, you still can't get worn. You make money, but it disappears. You try so hard, it comes to nothing. Why? Because you're trying to find in that what you already have in me. You see what I'm saying? You, you, you're trying to labor and pursue to get what you already have. You are satisfied in me. But are you? Are you looking at me? Are you looking through me? And this is what he's calling. Doesn't Jesus say to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you? To seek first. The goal isn't to seek peace. It's to seek Jesus. Whereby we will have peace. We must not call, fall into the trap of thinking that peace can be found if we could just change our circumstances. Well, how many times I've counseled a couple. And they tell you the issue. And you are explaining to them the truths of the gospel. And they just look at you with glazed eyes. As in, none of that has to do with my circumstance. Because they want their circumstances fixed more than they want a Savior. And that is what we have to call them to. To rest upon the finished work of Christ will do far more for your circumstances than changing them. You see, if you seek after peace more than righteousness, you'll get neither. But if you seek after righteousness more than peace, you'll get both. If you want to find peace in the midst of war, stop seeking after peace. And begin seeking after that which is greater than peace. That which ushers in. That which is himself peace. Our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, who has given to us all things that we need. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this time that we have. Lord, thank you for the attentiveness of those here this morning. God, just their eagerness to receive the word. Lord, I pray that you would bless them. God, that you would encourage them. There may be some here who are discouraged, who've been working with people, trying to counsel, trying to call them the right things, either to son or daughter or whatever the case may be. God, I just pray that you would encourage them. Lord, just to call them to remember what, what Paul says in Galatians 6. Let us not grow weary. Don't, don't give up and do any good. At the proper time, you will reap a harvest. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on Christ, the great author and finisher of our faith. 
Father, help us to realize more and more the treasure that we have. The treasure that we have in Christ. Father, we are rich in this room. All those who are in Christ Jesus are wealthy. Father, our wealth cannot be taken. It cannot be squandered. It cannot be destroyed. God, our wealth is an eternal wealth. It's a heavenly wealth that has currency in the heavens. So, Father, we pray you'd be with us today. We'd be with the rest of the speakers as they labor. God, help us to be attentive, to learn, to walk away from here with, with uh, better knowledge and, and better love for those we're working with or better love for, for you. God, help us to, uh, to be, uh, Lord, help us to constantly consider our ways. God, not, not under a condemning God, but under a God who says, consider your ways. Your, your life's not going well. I, I want it to go better. I want you to be more faithful because he knows that we'll only find satisfaction in Christ. Father, thank you for your grace again. Thank you for your patience with us as we learn and stumble and grow. Thank you that you don't cast us off. God, again, I ask for your blessings for the rest of the day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all very much. I pray that was beneficial.